Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 102. I'm your host, Paul Rekoff. Now, more than any other time, this is a time to stay vigilant. The yeas are 57, the nays are 43, uh, two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty. The Senate judges that the respondent, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the article of impeachment. The presiding officer directs judgment to be entered in accordance with the judgment of the Senate as follows. The Senate, having tried Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, upon one article of impeachment exhibited against him by the House of Representatives <clears throat> and two-thirds of the senators present, not having found him guilty of the charge contained therein, it is therefore ordered and a judge that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby acquitted of the charge in said article. There it is. There it is. Forever etched into the history books. The United States Senate has failed us. The second impeachment of Donald J. Trump is over. But the quest for accountability, the need for justice, and the requirement for vigilance continues. And the hardest, coldest winter of our lives continues. This is a time for vigilance and for leadership and for independence. Last episode, we began season two and our next 100 episodes with a new name for this show. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive. And for that, I thank you. This is a time for independence in all its form, in politics, in media, in business, in communities. In our last episode with Evan McMullen, former independent candidate for president, we laid out the groundwork for the foundation of this new phase of this show. This week, we'll build on that groundwork with another important, inspiring, iconic, and independent American leader, Ken Feinberg a man whose life and leadership will be the backbone of a major feature film on Netflix this fall on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. He's another independent brick added to our new foundation, and he's coming up next. But first, since we relaunched last episode, more critical bricks have been added. There's a new poll that says 62% of Americans believe a third party is needed in the United States. America's appetite for a third party and for independence has never been greater in Gallup's nearly two decades of polling on the subject. Nearly two-thirds of Americans say the U.S. needs a third major political party because the GOP and the Democratic Party, quote, do such a poor job representing the American people. 62% of all Americans say that a third party is needed. And only 33% said that two existing major parties do an adequate job of representing the majority of Americans' political views. 
It's the largest percentage of people to say the U.S. needs a third party since Gallup started polling on the question. And both parties have favorable ratings below 50%. The Democratic Party is viewed favorably by only 48% of Americans, while the GOP is even lower, viewed favorably by only 37%. An increasing number of Americans are fed up with both parties. And as the second impeachment of Donald Trump unfolded and was closed, it was easy to understand why. Trump was impeached by the House, but the Senate failed to convict him. Despite all the evidence, despite all the videos, despite what we all saw last month and in all the days leading up to it, the Senate failed to convict him. And so one day in the future, he could be president again. 57 to 43. That was the vote. 57 leaders put our country first and stood up. 43 cowards laid down. They put Trump and or politics ahead of our country. Among those 57 to convict were 48 Democrats and two independents who caucus with the Democrats, Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Angus King of Maine, and seven Republicans. Only seven Republicans put their country first. These are the seven Republican leaders who put country over politics, who put the future over Trump. Richard Burr of North Carolina, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney of Utah, Ben Sass of Nebraska, and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. These seven Republicans, represent the long-term future for the Republican Party. And they did the right thing. That seven stood up. And our friend, terrorism expert and guest of this show, Malcolm Nance, warned immediately on Twitter, Trump-based terrorism is coming. My guess is every one of those Republican senators' lives are in grave danger. Watch who Trump attacks personally. Hashtag be warned. This is true. Sadly, Malcolm's right. These seven Republicans stood up, and they are now in danger. We're all in danger, because 43 senators are cowardly disgraces to the Senate, to the GOP, and to America. They are the disgusting, weak, and complicit past, and history will never forget them. And this vote confirmed my thesis, a key thesis of this new phase of this show. That will be proven out every week in America. The two parties continue to fail their voters and fail America. In failing to convict President Mayhem, the Republicans failed. And so did the Democrats. Before the final vote even happened, three hours before the vote, Americans nationwide of all backgrounds were outraged. And many Democrats were outraged, understandably. And if you weren't angry, you weren't paying attention. There's a new name to this pod, but there's still good reason to be angry. Americans nationwide watching the impeachment trial were furious. Of course, because Trump was not found guilty, but even before that, understandably, as the Democrats yet again caved, they folded, they stood down, weakly agreeing to the request of the Republicans not to call witnesses. The Democrats just folded. 
the Democrats again played nice to a fault. The Democrats played nice to the detriment of their own party. The Democrats played nice to the detriment of our country. The Senate had voted 55 to 45 to authorize witnesses, but the Democrats behind closed doors backed down. They just let it go, just like that, denying the American people, the Senate, and the history books a chance to hear testimony from witnesses that were there. They could have called Donald Trump. They could have called Mike Pence. They could have called Kevin McCarthy. Sure, most of them would have tried to find a way not to appear or have pled the fifth, but they also could have called AOC who vividly recounted having to hide behind a door in the Capitol, holding her breath so attackers wouldn't kidnap and kill her. They could have called Congressman Jason Crow, a former Army Ranger from Colorado, who described how the attack felt in comparison to being in a combat zone in Iraq. They could have called Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona, another young combat vet, who used his combat experience to show his colleagues in the House how to stay calm don gas masks, and seek cover from potential gunfire. They could have called Representative Jamie Herrera Butler. She's a Republican from the state of Washington who made headlines because she recounted a phone call that Donald Trump had with Kevin McCarthy during the January 6th insurrection. Herrera Butler's account of the phone call came from a conversation she had with McCarthy, who told her privately that during the insurrection, he had called Trump to ask him to call off the attack. And Trump allegedly responded by telling McCarthy, quote, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. The Democrats could have called her as a witness. This congresswoman from Washington bravely stated she was willing to go on the record and say what she knew about Donald Trump's state of mind during the insurrection. But we'll never hear her testimony. They could have called Officer Eugene Goodman, the hero who stood up to the attackers, who saved Senator Mitt Romney's life. They could have asked him to recount what he saw, what we all saw, and what's now resulted in a unanimous Senate vote to award him our nation's highest civilian honor, the Congressional Gold Medal. The officer, who one day soon should have a statue of him erected in the Capitol for all to see forever. We all have seen him in action, defending our country. But none of us have heard from him. We don't even know what his voice sounds like. The Democrats could have called him as a witness, but they didn't. They did what Democrats too often do. They laid down. And Mitch McConnell was happy to have it. The entire painful public experience was yet another example of why so many in America are sick of both parties. Yeah, of course, the parties are not the same, but they're also not enough. And it's why more and more Americans are choosing none of the above. It's why more and more of us are talking with our party registration. And it's why more and more of us are moving from angry Americans to independent Americans. America's quest for accountability doesn't end after this impeachment trial. A January 6th commission should be created by Congress and signed into law by President Biden immediately. This needs to happen. If you don't think so, you don't care about our national security. It's that simple. We need this commission now.
just like after 9-11. The parallels between 9-11 and January 6 are now being presented daily. And like after 9-11, the responses our country makes to January 6 are being developed right now. And that must include a nonpartisan, exceptionally detailed investigation of that shameful day and all that came before it and after it. President Mayhem, former President Mayhem, welcomed the impeachment acquittal, saying that his movement has, quote, only just begun. Well, the bipartisan patriotic work to oppose him and his minions has just begun. In the end, the impeachment vote went pretty much as expected. There are many in the Senate that are cowards, but there are more in America that are not. And the movement to defeat, diminish, and dismantle Trumpism goes on. Because we never forget. We never forget that about 850 D.C. police officers, about a quarter of the force, responded to the Capitol attack. And we'll never forget that 65 were injured in hours of hand-to-hand combat. We'll never forget that one was killed, hero officer Brian Sicknick, after being pummeled with a fire extinguisher. And we'll never forget two officers who helped fight the mob have now died by suicide. We'll never forget that many more are hurting. We'll never forget that they need justice. We'll never forget that they need change. Just like for 9-11, for January 6th, we must never forget. Never forget how far Trump and his minions took it. They took it so far, very far. And if anyone wants to forget, remind them. As the great Dave Chappelle did with this message. Watch the tapes. Watch that crowd that told Colin Kaepernick he can't kneel during a football game, try to beat a police officer to death with an American flag. Look at that shit. What was that with Snowden talking about? Who is the terrorist now that they're looking for? It's you, not me, not my black Muslim ass. It's you. Who are they militarizing the police for? They didn't call the National Guard on my black ass. It's you. That's what white people did. They felt what black people have been feeling for 400 years. For 30 minutes, stormed the Capitol and rubbed their shit on the walls. They carried a fucking Confederate flag through the rotunda. The Confederate Army didn't even do that. Motherfuckers, you went very far. They went very far. We can't let it ever happen again. Because we'll already be paying the price for decades to come. 20 years from now, we'll be paying the price of January 6th. Just like now in 2021, we continue to pay a price for 9-11. This week, EMS Lieutenant Paige Humphreys of Station 16 in New York died. Another New York Fire Department hero lost to 9-11 illness. We can't forget and move past 9-11 20 years later. We can't forget or move past January 6th now. We need accountability. And we need President Mayhem held accountable in civil court, and if only by history. And we must arrest and prosecute to the fullest extent of the law every single terrorist that was a part of it and every single leader that enabled it. Our national security, 
Our international reputation and our future as a nation depend on it. Trump put out his statement, and so did Biden. And here's what it said at the very end. This sad chapter in our history has reminded us that democracy is fragile, that it must always be defended, that we must be ever vigilant. He said it. Be vigilant. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. That's the new tagline of this show. and should be for America. Vigilance is the price of freedom. And 2021 is the time to pay that price. This right now is the time to pay that price. We all, every single one of us, must stay vigilant. In ways big and small. From demanding more from our politicians to guarding against attacks from white nationalists, to protecting against attacks to our civil liberties, to watching for Russian cyber attacks, to watching out for each other every day by simply wearing a mask. Now, more than ever, we've got to stay vigilant. I was there on 9-11, and I didn't know how we would respond. This fall will mark 20 years since 9-11. We got a lot of the response wrong, very wrong but we got some of it right. Will we learn this time? Will we do better this time? Will the little guy and little gal get screwed? Or will there be justice? We've got the perfect person to ask. A proud son of Massachusetts, Ken Feinberg. Ken Feinberg is a master of disaster. He's a leader who's been asked multiple times by multiple presidents from different parties to do the impossible, to determine the dollar value of a human life after an unimaginable tragedy. From Agent Orange after Vietnam, to 9-11, to the BP oil spill, to the Boston Marathon bombing, to the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting, to the Sandy Hook massacre, now to the church sexual assault scandals and the opioid epidemic. Ken Feinberg has been tasked with the mammoth assignment of determining the worth of an individual life, of putting a number to it. He's the author of What Is Life Worth? The Inside Story of the 9-11 Fund and its effort to compensate the victims of September 11th. He's also the author of Who Gets What? Fair Compensation After Tragedy, and Financial Upheaval. He was profiled in a documentary called Playing God, and he will be played by the actor Michael Keaton in an upcoming Netflix film called Worth. The movie is the first feature film presented by Barack and Michelle Obama's Higher Ground Productions with Netflix, and it explores Ken's leadership in administering the unprecedented $7 billion Victims' Compensation Fund for over 5,300 people. Worth also stars Stanley Tucci and Amy Ryan and will premiere on Netflix later this year around the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Ken Feinberg is a voice of reason, a conscience, a mediator, and a uniquely independent leader on the American political stage. And he's a voice we need now more than ever. He joins me, his former student, for a thoughtful conversation about the calls for a 9-11-style January 6th commission, the appointment of Merrick Garland to lead the Justice Department, and whether or not there will be civil lawsuits after the attack on the Capitol. 
He talks about how to lead in partisanship and in crisis and how to face pain and loss in life. And of course, we talk about what he drinks, the first car he ever owned, and how he got to where he is in life. It's a powerful conversation with another important, inspiring, and iconic American, and a uniquely independent American. America's more divided, more angry, more violent than ever before. But I'll continue to bring the five eyes: independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. It's another timely conversation to help you through these hard times and to help you see paths to the future. A future that will continue to require sacrifice. We need independent leaders. Leaders like Ken Feinberg. Leaders who can stay above the madness, stay cool, focus on the mission, and do the right thing. Even when there seems to be no good answer. Leadership is often about taking on the tough task. And understanding sometimes there's no good path. It's all hard. But leadership is what guides us through it. And leadership is the light in the darkness, the light to bring heat in the coldest times. And we need that light now to warm us up when we need it the most in the coldest month of the year. That's when we need it most urgently. Stakes is high and times are hard. Winter is the hardest, but it's not a time to give up, tap out, get lazy, or get too tired to try. The winter of 1776 was a terrible time in the American colonies. The entire American cause was on the edge. Many were on the verge of death, and the outcome of the revolution was uncertain. Thomas Paine wanted to enable the distraught patriots to stand up, to persevere, and to fight for an American victory through that hard, cold, painful winter. Thomas Paine published the first crisis paper that winter, and the opening lines are as follows. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he who stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Winter is a time for toughness. This is a time for toughness. This is not a time for summer soldiers and sunshine patriots. This is a time for the winter soldiers, the ones who can hang in there, the ones who can help others through it, the ones who can stay focused, and the ones who can bring us to the warmer days. This is the time to stay vigilant. The coldest days in the winter of 2021 is the time to stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 102. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. We continue to talk to important, inspiring, iconic Americans that are shaping what this country has been, what it is, and what it will be. And I am very humbled, grateful, and excited to bring to the program 
uh, maybe the first ever guest who has also been a professor of mine, uh, a true public servant, uh, someone who's lived an amazing life and has tremendous insight on all things America, but especially what's happening right now. The great and powerful Ken Feinberg joins us here on Independent Americans. Welcome, sir, and thank you. My mother would love that introduction. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I haven't seen you in person in a long time. But many, many decades ago, uh, I was a student at Amherst College, and you were teaching a special class at UMass, and your son was a classmate and friend of mine, still is a friend. We played intramural basketball together and took classes together. Um, but a lot has happened to both of us since then. And, and I'm just really grateful to have you here at this moment in, in our country's history, this inflection point. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Let me ask you, Ken, straight off, you've been through a lot of incredible experiences. The pandemic is new for all of us. Where are you and how are you and the people close to you? Uh, I'm fine. The people close to me are fine. I'm now isolated in my law firm here in Washington. We're all shut down, but I'm here for this uh, defining podcast interview. Um, and um, uh, the family as well. Uh, my wife and I have received our first vaccine dose. We both are scheduled for a second dose in the next 10 days. And my family is spread out. Uh, some of them in New York City, as you know, Michael, and my granddaughters, my daughter is in Boston, but they spend a fair amount of time at our home on Martha's Vineyard, which is largely one of the safest isolated points uh, in America, uh, protecting them from the virus. I am I'm looking forward to talking through what's happening in Washington. You've been at the intersection. You've been called the, the master of disaster. You've had some of the hardest challenges, I think, that could be put on a leader from uh, all the way back to Agent Orange, where, where you worked with our friend Chuck Hagel, who joined us on this program, through 9-11, through the Boston bombing, uh, now the, the opioid issues. Um, but you've been through a lot. And I want to ask you, all of us are trying to figure out uh, ways to, to digest this moment, but I want to get an insight into who you are. So, Ken Feinberg, when you're not uh, taking on these mammoth tasks assigned by presidents, what is your personal drink of choice? Well, you know, you're going to laugh about this, but I, my, my personal drink of choice is Diet Moxie. Now, if, you haven't, if you've heard of Moxie, you know that it's a very rare uh, soda that uh, is not easy to find. It's really a New England drink. It's sort of like some root beer, some sarsaparilla, but uh, I have to order it online these days from uh, uh, the bottler in Georgia, and we have it shipped, but that's my choice, and it get, provides a good moxie uh, reaction. I'm so glad I asked, uh, because I never heard of moxie until I went to school in New England, and then it was kind of this regional Dr. Pepper almost with such a dedicated following. Uh, right. And you're a guy with a lot of moxie, and and I'm, I'm glad you shared that. Uh, when you were growing up, you're very proud of your of your roots. You know, you come from uh, Brockton, I think, right outside of Boston. Um, when you were growing up, Ken Feinberg, what was your first car? Um, well, when I was growing up as a child, my folks owned a DeSoto, which has long since been discontinued. Then we owned a Buick. The first car that I owned was when I uh, was married, moved to Washington, and our first car was an old Ford Granada. 
And um, it was our first automobile, my wife and I, and we loved that car. Do you know what year it was and what color? Do you remember what color it was, Ken? Yep. It was a maroon Ford Granada, and it was 1975 when we moved from New York City to Washington to come to work for Senator Ted Kennedy. And um, that was our first automobile. Hmm. That's the same year I was born. And, and uh, you know, soon after that, I guess, you, you know, maybe your your, your first defining career moment or, or that set you on this path was you were part of the crew that worked on the Agent Orange issue, right? And 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 maybe that guided you through so many of these uh, almost unimaginable uh, losses that our country's experienced from, uh, you know, shootings to 9-11 to now the, the opioid issues. C- can you tell me when you, when you took on the Agent Orange assignment, um, what was that like and how did it prepare you for the assignments to come and this moment now? Uh, Agent Orange, my role in the Agent Orange litigation is proof positive that it's a mistake to plan too far ahead. Hmm. If anybody had told me in 1984 that Judge Jack Weinstein in Brooklyn, federal judge who had the Agent Orange national litigation, if anybody had told me that he would call me and ask me to serve as a mediator, I had never taken a course in mediation. I, I, I had no experience attempting to get parties who are disagreeing to settle uh, a massive challenge to destroy the vegetation so the Viet Cong couldn't be hiding behind the bushes. But I knew Judge Weinstein, and he called me, and he said, Ken, drop what you're doing. I want to appoint you as the mediator to try and resolve the litigation that's been pending for years between the Vietnam veterans and the chemical industry that manufactured Asia, Dow, Monsanto. And I think you can do this. I said, Judge, I've never done it. No, you're the right man for this. I know you and I know that you're able and you will do this. And um, for eight weeks, Judge Weinstein, myself, we um, knocked heads among the lawyers litigating the case. And on the eve of trial, we settled the case for $250 million, which at the time was the largest mass tort settlement in American history. And from that defining moment, my whole professional life changed because I went from being the chief of staff to Ted Kennedy to becoming a mediator and a, um, a national claims administrator. And uh, that was the, uh, the pivotal shift uh, in my career. And Judge Weinstein was the one who uh, made it possible. You are a man who um, is well-versed in adversity and justice and empathy. Um, you know, you, you've been assigned unimaginable missions. Anybody who's been in the military could appreciate on some level how difficult the assignment you've taken from multiple presidents. You know, you were asked to put a, a number on people's lives, right? Which is, which is incomprehensible from 9-11 to the Boston massacre. But you also understand this country in a very important way. So we just experienced uh, the, the second impeachment of President Trump, the Senate vote. Um, you know, the president considers it an acquittal. Um, can you, from your unique vantage point, what do you see 
and, and someone who's not a legal expert, the average American who's concerned about that process and maybe the process to come, what is your, your assessment and, and what do you want us to think about as we end this really painful point and, and maybe continue to start more painful points, but the legal piece there has come to a close and maybe new legal pieces start. What do you see and, and what do you want us to think about? First of all, the tribalism that currently inflicts our political system must change. One thing I've learned in my years, Agent Orange, the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Marathon bombings, the, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon re-explosion. One thing I've learned more than anything else, when I'm asked to take on these challenges, they are apolitical, Paul. It's not red states, blue states, conservative, liberal, a right wing, left wing. It is apolitical, and I benefit an essential feature of all of these programs, every one of them. They are apolitical, and there is a consensus among the American people to try and help victims. And I benefit tremendously from avoiding the type of political polarization you see. If anybody after 9-11, if you had ever thought after 9-11, that we would see the political polarization that we see today, uh, no one would believe it. In 9-11, everyone in America, from wherever part of the country, rallied around the program and around my work. And um, that's one lesson I've learned, that, that major gut-wrenching decisions that I've had to make were done on a bipartisan, all-in basis. The other thing I've learned from these programs, never underestimate, even in difficult political times, never underestimate the charitable impulse of the American people. It is astounding to me that within 60 days of the Boston Marathon bombings, $61 million flowed from 100,000 citizens and companies around the nation, all to help to come to the rescue, to the aid of innocent victims. So when I see what's going on now with impeachment and polarization and criticism and invective and horrible um, um, lack of leadership, um, it is astounding to me when I compare it to how helpful society has been in advancing these programs where I, uh, after tragedy, offer empathy and financial certainty to innocent victims. This is part of why I wanted to talk to you now, Ken, because we, we, this show is, is called Independent Americans. We've got folks who really put their country first over party. It seems to be a growing part of this country, people who are rejecting the partisanship, who are rejecting both parties. They're looking for leaders with integrity. Um, you have been asked to be that leader of integrity, to be between the fighting political sides on some of the most radioactive issues of our time. Uh, but there's still a demand for accountability. 
And we're going to need leaders who can drive that accountability. So as the impeachment ends, you're, you're a guy who's an expert on this. Is there, is there space for, let's use the officer that was killed on the Capitol. Uh, officer Sicknick was killed by, by, during this insurrection. His family has lost him. Do they have recourse in, in, in a civil fashion? Can they sue the president at the time, Trump? Can they sue the government? What, how do you see that unfolding over time now that impeachment is over and there's talk of civil litigation? How do you see that unfolding and what are, what are the possibilities? I have mixed views about that. On the one hand, a civil litigation going to court is always a fundamental right of an individual who's been aggrieved, like the, uh, the wife or the, or the, or the family. Of, of the policeman. Beware of that as some sort of um, um, resolution, of, of um, closure. Be careful of that. Mm. The idea that you're going to spend the next two or three or four or five years focused on going to court, and trying to prove your case, trying to go to a jury. I think the American people sometimes um, depend too much on the courtroom. Uh, to me, what, and that may be good closure or good assistance, financial or otherwise, to the family. In terms of the country, I think that um, I'm on to this idea of a, of a January 6th commission, much like there was a 9-11 commission to uh, apolitical, to get to the answers of what happened and why. I think there is a vacuum today in our political system for true leadership, not just celebrity spots on television. And um, I, I think that right now there has to be a, a mid-course correction in what we look for in our political leaders, our elected officials, somebody who can, can bring the country, I think, through through personal leadership uh, back together from where it's been. And I think that's critically important. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so is, is there a change happening now in the country, Ken, where, you know, there've been these, every one of them is unprecedented, right? Whether it's the BP disaster, the attack on the Capitol, COVID. Um, is there a new expectation now from the country that there will be something that happens in the courts that will provide even reparations is now a discussion that we're having in the national discussion. You've been involved, you're involved in the opioid uh, epidemic, uh, the sexual uh, assault uh, survivors cases within the churches. Is there now an expectation and should there be an expectation that this is how it will be? It can never be made right. It can never be made whole, but that the little guy or gal will have this moment where the country will have to face this in a way that maybe wasn't true in the past. The verdict's out. The verdict is out. On the one hand, if you're an optimist, our history shows us that mid-course corrections, changes from the recent past, can be accomplished uh, with the right leadership and the right public support for a, uh, for a new way. That's the optimist. The pessimist in people say the system's broken. It requires institutional change, not elected change. It requires a new role for the U.S. Senate. It requires 
um, a reinforcement at the local level from from churches and from local communities. You you can't do a correction from the top down. It starts from our local rural urban areas. We'll see over a relatively brief period of time whether or not the whole dynamic of how the country reacts to decisions and what decisions should be made. I think uh, we are in a very uncertain period over the next, say, two years. We'll see if the inherent optimism of the American people is justified or whether we are in a, um, a crisis that maybe uh, hasn't existed since the American Civil War. Mm. So, Ken, part of what I think many Americans are looking for um, is, is ways to channel their energy. There's so much emotion. There's trauma. There's loss. There's, there's friction, you know, in, in communities across the country. Um, and, and they're looking for ways to channel that energy. You go through these incredibly emotional uh, experiences where you're, I, I, I got to imagine, absorbing the loss and trauma of so many people, but also anger. And in our show, we've explored what it means to be angry. Angry. We said, if, you, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. But what do you do with that anger? How do you channel it? You're human, Ken. What, what makes you angry? Well, what makes me angry is what makes a lot of the American people angry, an affront to our system, a belief that uh, um, you know life is unfair, which is probably true. Whoever said life is fair, I, I've learned to the contrary. What I have learned, I must say, in all of these programs is you must afford the victim. 9-11, BP oil spill, Boston Marathon, Virginia Tech shootings. You must afford the victim or the survivor an opportunity to be heard. You cannot dissipate that individual anger. You cannot lessen it. Even if you give people $5 million, doesn't matter. Money is a pretty hollow substitute for loss, injury, death. And unless you give people the opportunity to come in and speak their mind, um, society is going to confront some very, very unhappy, angry people. And I've learned the hard way that after tragedy, if you're going to, if you're going to provide some degree of financial certainty to people like 9-11, you better build into your program the opportunity, voluntary, purely voluntary, the opportunity for any claimant to come in and see me privately and express their anger. How could this happen? How could God allow this to happen? There is no God. There is no justice. And um, you better brace yourself for what you're going to hear. Mm. You, you, you've, um, you've guided people in their anger, their loss. Uh, you've, you've absorbed it and taken it on yourself. Um, a lot of folks right now are feeling loss or feeling anger, whether it's from the pandemic or the election uh, or the economic situation. But you're also a, a guy that's worked hard for decades to, to maintain your integrity and your independence. And, and I think 
really serve this country in important ways. So, Ken, do you have advice for people who are going through these hard times? As someone who's come out on the other side and is now providing leadership and support for others, and you're a grandfather now, do you have advice for, for all of us who are dealing with loss and frustration and all this emotion right now? Work within the system. Now, remember, when I was a teenager, the president of the United States was John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy said things, made statements that had a tremendous impact on my life. Things like, and this is a, the, the, these statements are a lesson, I think, for today for the American people. One, government is not a dirty word. Two, serving the public interest is a noble undertaking. And three, most important today to people who feel that they have been disempowered and have no voice and are not being heard. President Kennedy said, every individual can make a difference. And when you ask me as something as basic as what's the message that I present to the American people around the country, I don't care, red state, blue state, rural, urban, whatever. Be active. Have your voice be heard in, in countless ways in your own local community. Not just with your elected representatives. But, but don't sit on the couch and lament your plight. Mm. Every individual can make a difference. I've learned that. I've seen it. And the more active you can be, the more dedicated you can be to improving the lot, not only of yourself, but for your fellow Americans. It may sound cliche, but today, today, all I hear is me, 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 me. I don't hear much in the way of us, us, us together. And I think that's, you know, absence of leadership. I think it's, it's, it's the, the frustration of so many Americans that they can't have their voice heard. And I think that people have to be a more proactive local, national, state, county, village, everybody can make a difference. The, that, that is, I think, unfolding in the context of a time where now maybe folks are, are, are understanding that government's not a dirty word, where we're going to need everything from our national defense to the distribution of the vaccine and the CDC. Um, but we've got this tremendous change in leadership climate. You're, you're a guy who has to come into an incredibly volatile situation and create a leadership climate, what we call in the military, a command climate. It feels like Joe Biden so far in a short period of time is bringing down the temperature and trying to improve that climate, if only through his own example and the way he talks to people uh, and, and treats people. Um, do you have, what do you want to see? You've worked, you've been asked by presidents directly to take on missions. What do you, uh, as a citizen and as a leader, want to see from a, a new President Biden? Just what he's doing. One, competence. There is no substitute for surrounding yourself with the very type of competent people 
that President Biden so far seems to be, for the most part, uh, employing. Second, an attempt to get over this tribalism. He has said he's going to try and work with all parties, with all individuals, all differing views. Now, he may not succeed in all respects, but incremental improvement, contrasting with what we've had for four years, I think is is a a major step in the right direction. Hmm. So, I mean, this isn't new. I'm not offering any, you know, prescription that, gee, is that uh, creative thinking. To the contrary, I think you've put your thumb on it that he is a president with credibility. I mean, he's been in government for decades. I've known him for 40 years. And I think that the people surrounding him, his choice, for example, of Attorney General Merrick Garland, Judge Garland, a 10-strike, perfect person, um, to repair the Justice Department. I think that's what um, the American people expect in their leaders. And can I ask you why you think Merrick Garland is so perfect? Merrick Garland is a judge's judge. He, even the, the Senate Republicans acknowledged years ago that but for the timing and, and, and the decision to delay pending the election, he would have been a perfect choice. So he's a bipartisan selection. He has tremendous experience in the department over the last many years. And I think he will be um, um, the type of attorney general that the American people will look up to. Hmm. Can you you maintain positivity uh, during, you know, dealing with widows and, and families that are experiencing so much loss? Loss is kind of your business, right? Like you're anybody. I worked in the, the veteran space where you kind of got used to funerals and loss and pain, um, but you maintain positivity and optimism. So a question we also ask of all of our guests, Ken Feinberg, what makes you happy? Well, first of all, don't be uh, misled by my apparent objectivity and professionalism and uh, empathy, Uh, because when 9-11 or Boston Marathon families leave my office, there are tears and sadness, and what I do can be very, very debilitating. I take solace in the fact that, one, I have a very supportive and loving family. Two, as you have pointed out, a president or an attorney general or a governor or a mayor or the Congress ask me to do this. Well, you can't say you're too busy or you're not going to do it. So that's and you have, as I mentioned earlier, this this a political support. The public rallies around these programs. They're exceedingly rare, these programs that I, I design and administer. But when they are put in place, I'm reinforced by the knowledge that those who have asked me to do this are satisfied with the result, especially the people you're trying to help. And um, that goes a long way to making me, um, I don't know about happy, but satisfied. Well, I, I am satisfied to hear that, you know, we need leaders who are, who are tough and can handle tough times. And your story has been, you, you wrote a book 
there was a documentary about your life and now there's a film coming uh on netflix and and you tell me michael keaton will be paying playing you um what do you want folks to to know about those projects and 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 what do you think they can do to imp impact this discourse at at this time that's a great question now when i wrote the book what is life worth my memoir about the 9-11 victim compensation fund in 2005 i never expected that the words and the, the 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 story I presented as to what I went through with that night and what the victims went through, I never thought it could be translated to a screen, to a screenplay. And I was right for about 12 years. And then I was asked if um, I would allow, permit, the book to be translated to the silver screen, to the movies. And with some reluctance, I agreed. Well, I was very much surprised. Michael Keaton, Stanley Tucci, Amy Ryan, uh, they're all in the movie based on my book. And they did, I think, an incredible job uh, with a wonderful screenplay to really convey to the American people, per your question, one message, after 9-11, America, you watch when you go to the movies on Netflix, you watch and see how the country rallied around those victims. Watch that movie and see how there were no Republicans, there were no Democrats, no liberals, no conservatives, no red state, no, no, no tribalism. Everybody, everybody can do it. We'll rally around you. We'll help you. Um, we'll support your efforts. And if there's one lesson that I want people to see when they watch this movie is what a different culture it was back then. What a contrast to the, um, to the criticism and the screaming and the, and the attacks today instead of that type of bipartisanship, good government, because the 9-11 fund was government. Mm. And over 33 months, at Congress's direction, and with the support of the Bush administration and the President Bush, we distributed tax-free $7.1 billion to 5,300 victims and their families, the World Trade Center, the airplanes, the Pentagon. And at the end of that program, everybody, Republicans, Democrats, the American people, well done. The right thing to do. The right expression of American as one community. It worked. And what people have to see in that movie is how it worked then mm. as opposed to today. As a 9-11 first responder, as a, as a veteran, as an American, I am grateful for your leadership and your service, because I, I also, on a very different level, I don't understand your experience, but to take on the stories of others and the loss of others can be debilitating, but it's a huge personal sacrifice. Leadership, in my view, is about sacrifice. And you have sacrificed personally, 
uh, for our communities and for our country. And you continue to do that. And it's inspiring and I'm grateful for it. And I want you to know that. Um, if we were in person, I would give you gifts. I can't do that. So I'm going to have to do it virtually. So I'm going to send you some, some of our T-shirts that are hot off the presses. Uh, I don't, you can add it maybe to your moxie, but we've got Uncle Nearest Whiskey uh, that, that will be coming your way. Uh, we've got some Tommy John, very comfortable pants coming your way. So you, when you're in your office late hours, you can be more comfortable. Now, we also used to have uh, a question that we've changed a little bit for season two about peeps, the, the classic Easter candy. I'm going to send you pink, blue, and yellow. And the new question that has divided America to end on Ken Feinberg is a very difficult one. I know you're an independent man, but you must choose one side. And this is a question that now divides all our guests. Ken Feinberg, pancakes or waffles? Which one do you choose and why? Waffles, because with waffles, crispier, but also it's not the texture of waffles versus pancakes. It's really what you put on waffles, whipped cream, strawberries, blueberries, maple syrup. I mean, if you don't have diabetes and you make breakfast your foremost meal of the day, waffles hand down, hands down. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't disappoint with that one. <laughs> well, I, 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 we were going to continue to root for you, especially during these trying times. You are adding light to the heat. You are a conscience for our country. And I, I am still and always will be uh, privileged to have been your student uh, long ago before so many of these tragedies happened. Um, but you, you made such an impression on me then. And it's been inspiring and, and, and uh, gratifying to watch your work uh, and, and I wish you continued success. And I, I still, blown up, Michael Keaton is going to play you. I mean, that's not bad for, for, for a boy from Brockton, right? That's right. I also want to, Paul, I, I must say, as we conclude, uh, a, a tip of the hat to you as well and to Righteous Media, because you're an example of every individual can make a difference. No one's demanding that you do this. This is something you want to give back. It's an example. We, I'm sure we have scores of examples. But uh, an honor and a privilege to participate in this podcast. I want you to know that. Well, thank you, sir. And we'll be in it together going forward. Continued success and, and all the best to you and to Michael and the entire family. Thank you for your good work. And as we say around here, stay vigilant. Thank you very much. Every individual can make a difference. That's a powerful and timely message from Ken Feinberg. This winter is a time for leadership, individual leadership, independent leadership, especially. February can be the hardest month of the year. It's when holidays seem far in the past. It's when spring seems far in the future. And it's a good thing it's the shortest month of the year because it's often the hardest, especially for those of you in Texas right now and in so many other parts of the country. So we got to keep breathing, especially in the hardest months and in the coldest months and in the darkest times. But it's always darkest before the light. So keep breathing. Do it with me. Come on. And encourage others to do the same. Breathe, because we're processing a lot right now. 
as a country and as individuals. But we're processing it together. And Trump is getting quieter. And Biden is getting louder. And he's promoting a much-needed sense of calm. And an example of how to be a helper. This was President Biden at a CNN town hall this week. Carrie Ingebrecht, an independent from Oak Creek. Carrie, welcome. Go ahead. Thank you. Carrie, how are you? Very good, thank you. Our 19-year-old son was diagnosed with pediatric COPD at the age of 14. We're told he has the lungs of a 60-year-old. He does all he can to protect himself. Last month, he even removed himself from the campus of UW-Madison as he feels it's safer and he has less exposure here at home. We've tried all we can to get him a vaccine. I hear of others who are less vulnerable getting it based on far less. Do you have a plan to vaccinate those who are most vulnerable sooner to give them a priority? Well, the answer is yes, there are. But here's how it works. The states make the decisions on who is in what order. I can make recommendations, and for federal programs, I can do that as President of the United States. But I can't tell the state, you must move such and such a group of people up. But here's what I'd like to do. If you're willing, I'll stay around after this is over, and maybe we can talk a few minutes and see if I can get you some help. That's what we need. A leader who can speak to a concerned mother who's worried about getting her kid vaccinated. That is what we need. Finally, we have a president who's a helper, a person who shows kindness and empathy, a person who thinks of others, a person who helps, just like Mr. Rogers told us about. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. In the coldest of winters, we need more of that warmth and more of the helpers. And we salute all of the helpers out there on the front lines, fighting misinformation, looking out for others, opening schools deep inside Texas right now. And especially all of you who are getting out the vaccine and all of you that are getting the vaccine. I'm hearing on social media from more and more of you that have gotten it. I told you about my over 75 cancer surviving in-laws and how they got their second vaccine shot. And my dad, who's a fireman, he's gotten both shots now too. And the second one kicked his ass for a few hours, but then he was good to go. But my mom and so many others still haven't gotten it. And I know many of you listening haven't gotten it, but hang in there. The helpers are coming. And I salute all of you, the nurses, the teachers, the cops, the soldiers, everybody out there. On the front lines, you are all helpers. And we also salute the helpers that made this episode possible. And that starts with Ken Feinberg. He's an exceptional guy. Check out his books, What Is Life Worth? And Who Gets What? You can find them anywhere you find books. And check out the documentary about his life called Playing God. And look for Worth on Netflix this fall. And if you ever get a chance, take his class. I did, and I'm glad I did. Independent Americans are the future And Ken Feinberg's part of it. And he's a true helper. And the Righteous Media team is also full of helpers, powering us through this really cold snow globe of a winter. Shout out to Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz. And my thanks especially to our fearless Patreon members. 
They are growing in numbers. And I am especially grateful for all their support. They've helped us make this transition into the new season, and they're keeping us chugging along. If you can join us, please do. Go to Patreon and join this motivated crew. And there are three new members I want to give a shout-out to, Christopher Dow and Kathy Appenrod. Both of them joined on Valentine's Day. So Christopher and Kathy, welcome. And someone else, my mom. My mom is now a member of our Patreon community. Thanks, Mom. I appreciate that. You can join that vigilant community and my mom if you look for independent Americans on Patreon. Chip in, help us keep this show and the dispatches and everything else we're doing coming. Nobody's digging into the issues like we are, and we're going to continue to have events exclusively for Patreon members on Zoom and in person when that is possible. Be a part of what we're building and please share. And if you like this show, please take a minute, go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. And be sure to subscribe for free and share. If you haven't subscribed, do it right now. It's free. And you can visit us everywhere on social media. Look for Independent Americans. And check out the newly designed IndependentAmericans.us. We've got a new upgraded site with all our great content with more to come. I joined my friend Pete Dominic on his show Stand Up with Pete Dominic. It was a fun and spirited discussion. Are all Republicans who voted for Trump fascists? I don't think so. Pete does. We debate. We debate that. We talk about why I changed the name of this podcast. We talk about which famous bald white guys we look like. And we talked about my CNN.com piece breaking down the extremism problem in the military. It's a great listen. We also talk about Room Raider and compare his shed and my garage. Check it out everywhere you get podcasts. Stand up with Pete Dominic. And check out my op-ed on CNN.com with Amy McGrath. She joined us back on episode 17 in July of 2019 when she first declared her intent to run against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. You can go way, way back and check out episode 17 for my really fascinating discussion with Amy McGrath. She's a former Navy Academy professor and flew 89 combat missions in an F-18. But she's a really important leader, and we teamed up to write a really important piece about how the military needs to confront the enemy within. One in five of the Capitol Hill attackers had served in uniform. Amy McGrath and I unpack why. Look for that on CNN.com, and I'll dig into it more in the episodes to come. But my thanks to Amy and my thanks to CNN.com for giving me the opportunity. My thanks also, of course, to my wife and two boys. Valentine's Day was a cold one, but my wife and I finally got a night alone, which was nice. Earlier in that day, it was checkers, chocolate, and Radio Woodstock with my five-year-old, and playing catch and dancing with my almost two-year-old. But that night, my wife and I got maybe the most amazing Valentine's gift of all, a good night's sleep. So my thanks to my mother and father-in-law for holding down the fort. My wife and I got a drink at an outdoor spot around a campfire, and we had Chinese takeout, and we watched the final two episodes of Your Honor, the new Brian Cranston show on Showtime, which is good. It's not great. It's not Breaking Bad, but it's good, and I recommend it. Because like Valentine's Day, it's about love. It's about the love of a parent for a child and about the sacrifices we make for them. And this is a time where a lot of us are making sacrifices for our kids. And the other night, my boys and I did something else together. We made a fire. Because making a fire in the winter is an important thing to learn. But it's also an important thing to remember. That when it gets the coldest... That's when you need a flame the most. And as we talk about bringing the fire, 
I love the new Foo Fighters album. The boys and I are rocking out to this track every single time we get in the car now. Foo Fighters frontman Dave Grohl is an inspiring genius. And that song is called Making a Fire. In this cold winter of hardship, we all need to make a fire to keep us warm, to light the way. It's what so many folks in Texas are being forced to do right now. And it's what we'll have to do politically to keep things moving. And our vigilance will keep the flame of liberty burning. It went pretty low sometimes in the last four years with Trump. And it almost went out on January 6th. But it's getting warmer again. It's not always enough, but it's getting bigger and warmer. And eventually, the weather will too. If we take care of that flame, if we feed it and we care for it, every fire requires fuel. It's a sacrifice to keep it going. And parenting is about sacrifice. And leadership is about sacrifice. And patriotism, true patriotism, is also often about sacrifice. Like Ken Feinberg, like EMS Lieutenant Paige Humphreys of Station 16, like Capitol Hill Police Officer Brian Sicknick, or like all of us, just continuing to wear a mask, socially distance, be smart, share good information, and get the vaccine when it's our turn. 2021 will be a year of sacrifice, just like 2020 was. But the sacrifices we make for our kids or for our national security are worth it. These will be too. And our country will be stronger for it and hopefully more united. America needs to be tough. America needs unity. And places to find it are hard to come by. But this show will continue to strive to be one of those places. A campfire that we can all stand around and get a little bit of warmth from. And I hope you can find ways to support and create places like that yourself, whether it's a campfire at your job or just on your Facebook page. Maybe it's adding some warmth by shoveling a neighbor's driveway or helping someone get to a place where they can get the vaccine. This is gut check time in America right now. The winter of 2021 will forever be a defining time in our country's history. If you're listening now, that means you're alive. Don't blow it now. Don't be the person who gets COVID and dies in the last few months before the vaccine hits. Don't be the person who gives it to someone else who's more vulnerable than you. You don't want to be the person who dies in the winter or spring of 2021 any more than you want to be among the last to die in the final months of Vietnam or Afghanistan. Hang in there and help others hang in there. In that coldest time is when we need to keep the fire going the most. The lyrics in that Foo Fighters song go, Are you afraid of the dark? I know a place we can start. It's time to ignite. I'm making a fire. Make a fire, keep it burning, and share it with others. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. It's always okay to be angry, but that's not enough anymore. 
we must pay attention and stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. It's the fuel for our fire. And know you're not alone in that vigilance. We're all vigilant. More and more by the day. Because we're paying attention. And we're all in this together. Thanks for being a part of it. Keep the fire going. Warmer days are ahead. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay frosty. Even when it's really cold. And stay vigilant, America. America.